are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. You can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now with copies of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, just put your hand up or um, a wave to them, holler at them. And we want to make sure everyone has a chance to follow along. This is going to be another topical message where we're going to be turning through a number of different passages in God's Word. I'm going to show some of them for you up on the screen, but it's going to make a lot more sense if you're able to, uh, to follow along uh, today. Uh, today's message is about identity. A lot of what goes wrong in our world and a lot of what goes wrong in our lives happens because we try to place our identity somewhere where it doesn't belong. The reason why we work too much and get so stressed about our performance is because we're placing our identity there. The reason why we spend so much time in front of a mirror obsessing or even condemning ourselves because of the way that we look is is because we're putting our identity there. The reason why we stay in friendships or even romantic relationships that are unhealthy is because We've placed our identity there. The reason why we spend more than we should is because we've we've put our identity into our material possessions. But when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, God gives us a new identity and a, a new way of thinking about ourselves, a new way of defining who we are. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at seven different ways you can define yourself as a Christian. Seven different categories the Bible gives to us as ways to identify ourselves as Christians. Now, the most common one that's used over 200 times in Paul's letters and dozens of other times throughout the New Testament is this concept of being in Christ. Do you see it there in 2 Corinthians 5.17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, over 200 times Paul says in Christ or in him or in the Lord or in Jesus the most common way to talk about what it means to be a Christian is to be called in Christ. Him. And today we're going to look at seven different things, seven different identities of someone who was found in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for God's help right now, and so let's all uh, pray together. And so Heavenly Father, we have a lot of content to cover, a lot of things that need to be explained from your word. And so God, I pray that you'd shower us with your grace. God, I pray that we would be filled with your spirit, Lord. And God, I pray that you would speak to us. And God, I pray that you would speak to us so clearly, Lord. I pray that it wouldn't simply be my voice, but it would be you telling us who we are. What our identity is as we are found in Christ. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The first place we're going to look is Galatians chapter 2. It's the next book after 2 Corinthians. So Turn in your Bible from 2 Corinthians to Galatians chapter 2 and find verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But now, look in the middle of the verse there, it says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There's two eyes. There's the eye that was crucified, and there's the eye that no longer lives, but then there's the second eye, this new eye, that is now alive, that is alive in the flesh, and that has Christ living in him. And this is the first truth about those who are in Christ. You can jot this down. In Christ, I am alive through his death. In Christ, I am alive through his death. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. What happened to Christ happens to us. That's what it means, essentially, to be in Christ. Christ. Someone shared this illustration with me before. Here's a, here's a piece of paper. These are my sermon notes. And here's my Bible. If I put my sermon notes in my Bible, what from now on, whatever happens to my Bible happens to my sermon notes. If, this, if the Bible goes in the bag, the notes go in the bag. If the Bible goes on my desk, the notes go on the desk. If the Bible gets dropped on the floor, the notes get dropped on the floor. The, the, the notes are in the Bible. In the same way, you are in Christ. Christ was crucified, we have been crucified with him. Christ was buried, we have been buried. Christ has been raised, we have been raised. What happens to Christ, because we are in him, happens to us. That's what Paul is getting at there. I've been crucified with him. We are in him. Now look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. It's the next book of the Bible. Just turn over a couple of pages, find Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to find the same truth. Ephesians chapter 2 and find verse 4. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because Christ died, we are made alive. Our identity is that we are alive through his Death. And now turn uh, backwards in your Bible to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. It's so important that we understand that we have this new life, that we have been made alive through Christ's death, and that is true because we are in him, and what happens to him happens to us. It's seen nowhere more clearly than in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, there's that phrase again, into Christ Jesus, we're also baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, notice this, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are in Christ. When someone gets baptized, they are going under the water to show that they were buried and died with Christ. And they rise again out of the water to show the newness of life that they are now living in because they are in Christ. We're having a baptism service coming up in a a couple of weeks and we're starting a baptism 101 class. You can see that in your sermon notes and the announcements at the bottom. And listen, if if you are in Christ... If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to be baptized. It is a command that those who are in Christ need to be baptized. And listen, baptism doesn't save you. Baptism simply symbolizes what Christ has done and how you are in him. 
In Christ, I am alive through his death. Here's the second marker of our, of our identity. Uh, in him, I am justified by his grace. I am justified by his grace. And it's a good thing that you're already turned to the book of Romans in your Bibles because really the whole thesis, the whole point of the entire book of Romans is to talk about this one truth of being justified by grace. And so turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 and find verse 23. These are uh, familiar verses to uh, many of us. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is where all of us are. We, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And then look at verse 24. And are justified by his grace. When I put justified by, by his grace in your sermon notes there, that wasn't just because I made it up. That's right from the Bible. We are justified by his grace. Grace. What does it mean to be justified? That's one of those churchy words we say all the time. We sang it in like four of the songs already this morning. What does it mean to be, uh, to be a justified? A justif a justification is a legal term in which a judge declares someone to be righteous. It is a declaration of someone's righteousness. But if you read Romans 3.23, the declaration that should be given to all of us is guilty or condemned because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the, the declaration that should be hanging over us is guilty or condemnation, but Romans 3.24 says that we are justified by his grace, and by the grace of God, rather than declaring us guilty, he declares us righteous by his grace. We are justified by his grace. And then throughout the, the rest of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is unpacking this concept. And even when he doesn't use the word justified, he's still talking about the concept. Look at the next chapter, Romans 4 and verse 6. He talks about Abraham, about how Abraham believed in God and he was justified. How his, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now he's going to talk about David in Romans 4 verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and those whose sins are, given, are, are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So in this particular uh, paragraph, the word justified is not used, but, but the concept of justification is found in two, in, in, in two important, uh, the repetition of the same word uh, twice in this paragraph. It's the word count. Justification means how you are counted or what is counted to you. Theologians would say what is imputed to you. Notice how in verse 6, just as David also spoke the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness. And then look at the end of verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's two things that are happening in justification that are being described here in Romans 4. And it has to do with counting. Verse 8 is what we normally think about justification. God does not count our sin against us. We are, we are, he, does, he does not count our, our, our condemnation. That's not, that's not in our account. That's not imputed to us anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. But if you look at verse 6, there's another counting. The one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the law. It's not just that we aren't counted sinful. It's that we have been given and counted righteousness. 
So let me show you uh, what I mean with, with, with a quick diagram here. Here is a, a cup representing Jesus and representing us. This is what is initially counted to Jesus and what is counted to us. Jesus' cup is blue, and it, 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 it's pure, and it is complete righteousness. 33 years of perfect obedience going on all the way back into eternity before he became incarnate. He was pure, always delighting in the Father. He's the Son with whom he is well pleased. Perfect righteousness is counted to Christ. And the black in our cup symbolizes our sin, our vileness, our evil, our rebellion. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now if things just stayed as they were, this is what would be in the two cups. To Christ would be counted righteousness and to us would be counted sin and condemnation and death and eternity away from God. But this is what happens when Jesus died for us on the cross. Isaiah 53 says that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that he was numbered among the transgressors. That our sin was counted to Jesus Christ. And that when he suffered and died on the cross, he was paying the penalty. He was bearing the identity of unrighteousness. And because he was holy and perfect, the more it was poured out onto him, the more it was just taken away. And he died in our place and then rose again to conquer death, to show that the righteousness that was counted to him has been taken away. So now our cup is empty. So now we don't, we're, God's not counting our sin against us because Jesus took, took it away from us. Now, if that was all that were to happen, that would be awesome. But the result would be not that we are righteous, but that we're neutral. And not that we've, so we've been forgiven for all the wrong things that we've done, but there's, there's no goodness in us that can be counted to us. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that two things happened on the cross. Our sin was counted to Christ, but also Christ's righteousness was counted to us. And so now the two cups are Christ, because he's infinite, his righteousness hasn't been depleted at all, and yet he has poured out his righteousness into our account. And so now we are not counted sinful and we are counted righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We are justified by his grace. Uh, Jerry Bridges has been uh, such a, a valuable resource to me. He's an incredible Christian speaker and author. He just went to be with the Lord a number of weeks ago. And this is how Jerry Bridges describes justified. He says, to be justified is to think just as if I'd. Just as if I'd never sinned, that's our cup being emptied onto Jesus, and just as if I'd always obeyed, that's Jesus' righteousness being poured out into our cup. This is what is true. This is your identity. If you are found in him, then you have been declared righteous. You have been justified. And this, this theme shows up all throughout the Bible. Look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. It says, and to be found in him. There's that phrase again. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I'm not filling up my own cup. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on Faith. By faith, we believe that our sinfulness has been put to Christ's account and that Christ's righteousness has been put into ours. Similarly, 2 Corinthians 5.21 summarizes it so beautifully. For our sake he made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin. Sin was counted to Christ. So that, here's the key again, in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what it means to be justified by his grace. And now look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because justification happened, we have peace with God. And nothing will ever change that. That was a legal declaration that was made once for all for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are at peace with him. Now hands up if you understand biblically and practically what it means for you to be at peace with God. This is not a trick question. Do you know that you are at peace with God because you're justified? Everyone's afraid that I'm trying to trick them right now. Some of us need some more assurance of our salvation. Do you know you're justified? Come on, put your, uh, everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ, should, there's, I, I, I'm too tricky, aren't I? I, I, I? But here's the truth. Even when we know we have peace with God, we still struggle with what we talked about last week, that war that's inside of us. We know that we are forgiven. We know that we are counted righteous. We know that we are justified. But what do we do with the war that's happening? There's no peace inside of us, even though we know we have peace with God. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in the next chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look with me at uh, Romans 6 and verse 17. Romans 6, verse 17, it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Your heart's been changed. You're now obedient from uh, the heart. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, but just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, notice this, leading to sanctification. That war that's happening. How am I going to present my body? Am I going to present my body to sin or am I going to present my body to Jesus Christ? How am I, how that war that's going inside, that, that, that desire for dominion that sin has inside of every one of us, that's attacking the new heart that is obedient from the heart. That whole war, that whole process is described as sanctification. Here's our third identity marker, that we are sanctified by his spirit. In Christ, I am sanctified by his spirit. The word sanctify simply means to set apart as holy. Sometimes sanctified is used in a, in a past tense, that it's something that has already happened. But a number of times in the New Testament, you have it like it is in Romans 6, sanctification. It's a process. It's ongoing. It's continuing. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, has this chart that I've kind of modified a little bit for our purposes, and um, it sort of divides our life into three sections. Our life without Christ, our new life in Christ, and life in eternity when Christ returns or when we die to go with him. Now, life without Christ, listen, 
it was going nowhere but down. It might have been okay relationally, might have been okay financially, you might even found yourself to be okay morally, but spiritually speaking, everyone knows this, that your life apart from Christ is going down. And things are getting worse. And it, but God intercedes. We were dead in our sins, things were getting worse, but God has made us alive. He has justified us. He has changed our status. So we move from having a life without Christ to now having new life in Christ. And the thing that gets us from the life of death to the, light, to the abundant life that we have in Jesus Christ, the thing that gets us there is justification. God declares us innocent and God declares us righteous. We, our sin is not counted to us and Christ's righteousness is. That's what gets us there then the ongoing process of living the Christian life is called sanctification. And listen, sometimes there's some ups and sometimes there's some downs. And, and, and we're all in process. We are all, we're all at war. Sometimes the flesh is winning. Sometimes those desires and those, those, those deceitful pleasures, sometimes those are winning. Sometimes our new heart is winning. But what the lie of the enemy is, is that the, the enemy wants to tell us that when we are losing or when, we, when the sanctification line is sort of headed down on the graph, that we can somehow get down into life without Christ and that we need to be re-justified. Listen, if you have been justified, that is a once-for-all declaration over your life. You will never go back down here, ever. And there, listen, there's all kinds of ups and downs in sanctification, but there are clear boundaries in which your sanctification is moving. And you will never go below that line again. And then there is a third stage, which is glorification, where we, we will never be perfect until glorification, which is when we die or when Christ comes for us to be with him forever. Now listen, justification and sanctification are so crucial. Listen, they're so closely related. And we get into trouble when we separate them. And we get into even bigger trouble when we confuse them or blur them together. Your sanctification journey, the ups and downs, has absolutely no bearing on your justification at all. You cannot be unjustified. There's no need to be re-justified. It is a once-for-all declaration. And so justification is a dot. It is a point in time. It happened. Glorification is going to happen. It will be a dot. It will be a moment in time. Sanctification is a line. And sometimes it's squiggly. Mine is a lot more squiggly than I would like it to be. And so to sort of summarize, justification is this. Justification is, has been done permanently. It's been done uh, permanently. And sanctification has been done progressively. I know I jumped ahead here, but uh, go back to the other thing that I jumped. Too excited to show you that chart. Justification permanently, sanctification happens progressively. Justification is a dot. It's one moment. Sanctification is a line. It's an ongoing process. So if you keep uh, looking in Romans 6, even look at uh, Romans 6 verse 22, it says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification, leads to this process of becoming holy, being set apart for God, and its end, eternal life. 
And so what we are been sanctified by his spirit. A couple of other verses to show you here on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. It says, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a great way to talk about our identity. You want to know who I am? I am who I am by the grace of God. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Who's working in sanctification? Who does the work? Well, it's us, but it's not really us, it's God. Because it's by the grace of God. Even the ability to work, even the ability to desire, to want to change, even the ability to want to grow, all of that comes from God. It's a gift of grace. And yet we are working together to see our lives change, to see ourselves sanctified. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're sanctified by the Spirit. We're being transformed. Notice how we're transformed by degree. You see, some of us want to be transformed by quarters. Glorification! No, we're transformed by degree. 360 of them. Tiny, little, can barely even tell sometimes, am I making any progress? But it's happening. From one degree of glory to another. Then look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Philippians 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, so I haven't been glorified yet. Jesus has declared me righteous, but I'm still living out that righteousness. But I press on to make it my own. Notice the emphasis on effort. I'm working at it. Because Christ has made me his own. Notice how the effort is rooted in the fact of what Jesus has already done for us. I press on to make it my own because I know that Jesus has already made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, notice this, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our sanctification does not earn our salvation. Justification is how you are saved. But sanctification is how we live as a result of our justification. You, we don't work hard. We don't pray. We don't read our Bibles. We don't serve because we're trying to impress God. We are at peace with God. Sanctification is the process of being at peace with ourselves and, and having, listen, God has already given us everything and it's our, it's our job to make it our own, to live it out. But it doesn't affect where we stand as far as salvation or as far as our justification. It's very important that we understand that distinction. So I am sanctified by his spirit. And that leads into this, this next uh, title, this next identity marker, because the, the, roots, the root words are the same. So I am sanctified by his grace, which leads to I am a saint by his calling. A saint. Do you know that you're a saint? You know right now you're sitting beside, there's a whole row of saints right there. There's St. Anthony right here. There's St. There's Germain. There's St. Daniel. There's St. Emmeline. We're all saints. 
And uh, you could mess with your non-Christian friends someday. You know what? I, I'm going over to St. Anthony's. You want to come with me? Are you going to some church? No, I'm just going to my friend Anthony's house. He's a Christian. Because that's how we should be speaking. A saint isn't some special title reserved for some special super spiritual person. We are all saints. And saint simply means, saint means sanctified. Saint means that we have been set apart for God. A couple of verses to, uh, to show this truth. Romans 1 verse uh, 7 says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. We're saints by his calling. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth and to those called to be saints. I'm oh, sorry, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. You read the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians? That church was so messed up. Their leaders were messed up. Their followers were messed up. Their doctrine was messed up. The way they ran church services was messed up. The way they were treating each other was messed up. The way they were interacting with the world was messed up. Their marriages were messed up. It was all messed up. And yet, he called them saints. There was still so much that needed to happen. And on their graph, it was like this. And yet, he called them saints. Saints, you are here today. Listen, you may feel like you're just barely hanging on in your faith. You're a saint. You are a saint. You have been set apart by Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That is your identity. I'm a saint by his calling. Number five, I'm a slave in his service. These next few will come quite quickly. I'm a slave in his service. The New Testament authors, when they're introducing themselves, um, the way you wrote um, letters in the Roman world was sort of backwards. Normally, you sign your letter at the very end. Um, but uh, in the Roman world, when you wrote a letter, you wrote your name at the very beginning. And their tagline, their, their sort of a signature for Paul, for Peter, for James, and for Jude is not Paul, an apostle, not Peter, one of Jesus' right-hand mans for James and Jude, not, you know, the half-brother of Jesus. No. They all begin their letters by saying, Paul, a servant. Peter, a servant. James, a servant. Jude, a servant. But they actually don't say servant. There's a, if you go to the beginning of any of your letters in the New Testament, you don't have to turn there now, you'd see a footnote that says the, the, the actual Greek word there is slave. And then they invite you to turn to the preface of your Bible. I don't know if you've ever read your preface, but it's actually pretty helpful. It's, it's a note from the translators to tell you how they're going to deal with certain difficult words. Every Jehovah's Witness should just read the, the preface to a, to a Bible, and uh, half their theology would be solved right there. I'm not even joking. But in the preface to the English Standard Version... It talks about how they've chosen to use the word servant instead of the word slave because their intended audience for this translation are people mostly living in Europe and North America who speak English. And people who live in Europe and North America, when they th hear the word slave, they think about the, the tragedy of the North American slave trade. And when Paul says that he had been a slave of Christ, when Peter says that he, had, that he was a slave, being captured and taken across the world and treated like chattel, that was the farthest thing from their mind when they were writing that. 
And the translators don't want us to think that when we hear slave, even though the word slave is all over the Old Testament, all over the New Testament. But this is our identity, and this is why the word slavery is really important for us to understand biblically. Is because it is different from servant. You can be a servant and kind of be under a contract. But when you're a slave, you actually belong to your master. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 6 verse 19 says that, you, that we were bought with a price. We are not our own. And Peter and Paul and Jude and James recognize that. And we all need to recognize that. That Christ died to pay a ransom. A ransom is what sets a slave free. But we weren't just set free to go off on our own. We have been given a new master. And we are his slave, properly understood. We are his servant, as the ESV translates it. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that we need to rethink the way that we approach prayer and approach God's word. Because too often in our prayer lives, we come to God like he's our slave. Like here's a list of things I need you to do here, God, and by Tuesday it would be preferable. And meanwhile, we need to come to God and say, I'm your servant. I belong to you. I am your slave. You are my master. Tell me what to do. We spend too much time telling God what to do and not enough time asking him what he wants us to do. It also changes the way that we approach church. Because too often we, you know, we walk into church and we're sort of walking around with our clipboard being like, okay, what programs do they have and what can they do for me and, and, and all of that. So, listen, that shouldn't be how it, how it goes. We're supposed to show up at the church with our sleeves rolled up, ready to serve. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It says, as each, as, you, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. We are slaves in his service. We are, we are called to serve him and to serve one another. So we need to make sure that we remember that. A slave in his service. Number six, a citizen in his kingdom. A citizen in his kingdom. Take a look at Philippians 3.20 on the screen. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have a, we're awaiting our savior. And there's a reason why we're here waiting and why we're not there where we already are citizens. There's a reason why we're waiting. It's because we've been given a role. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So that's our job to be ambassadors while we wait for our Savior to return. Our citizenship is in heaven. John 17 verse 4, Jesus talking to his father in prayer about us. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. One of the cool things about living in Brampton is that I get to meet all kinds of people who, before they moved to Brampton, lived somewhere else, somewhere else in Canada or somewhere else around the world. And uh, there's a number of people who are in this room right now, and they're citizens of Canada, and they, they uh, either have dual citizenship or used to be citizens in another nation, whether it be um, just anywhere. Just name the place. There's probably someone in this, in this church from that place. And 
all of, all of you have this kind of experience of you're now a citizen of Canada. You're used to our government. You're used to our infrastructure. You're used to the way things work. And then you go home, whether it's for a week or whether it's for an extended period of time or whether you go to another country for work or something like that. And you have, you, you're, you're living, you are a Canadian, you're a Canadian citizen. And because of that, the ways of your old country, they just don't fit anymore. And you have this sort of homesickness, or I, I want things to be back the way, that they, the way that I experienced them in my new home. That's not to say that Canada is any better as a country than some other country, but it's, it's your home. In the same way, we long to be home in heaven. We want things to be done on earth as they are in heaven. That's supposed to be our prayer every day. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But listen, and we're called to be ambassadors. But listen, sometimes diplomatic relations are kind of volatile. Sometimes the world hates us, as Jesus said in John 17. And the reason why they hate us is because we don't belong here. We're not citizens here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we don't fit in with the culture around us. We shouldn't be surprised if our friends sometimes look at us strangely because of a position we take on a certain issue. We shouldn't be surprised if we feel left out sometimes at work or even within our families. Because this is not where our citizenship is. And so this is our identity. But all of these six things are all pointing towards this last ultimate thing. We're alive through his death, justified by his grace, sanctified by his spirit, a saint by his calling, a slave in his service, and a citizen of his kingdom, all so that we could be a child in his family. A child in his family. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's what we are called. That is our identity. We are part of his family. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. God's family is an adoptive family. God's family is a step family. We have been adopted into his family. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us. Then look at Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Now, uh, some of the females here especially might be wondering, what's all this talk about sons? Why, why not sons and daughters? Why can't there be a little footnote in the Bible? And, and, and why can't we put that in the preface too? Why does it always say sons? Well, again, we've got to understand that we're reading this in, in 2016 and that this was written 2,000 years ago. And it, it hinges on this issue of inheritance. If you were a daughter, you didn't have an inheritance. You weren't an heir. And so when he's saying here that you are sons, he's speaking to the, to the men and the women, 
powerfully and beautifully seeing that the, the women in Christ are being treated as though they are sons in Christ and entitled to the inheritance. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, a, a verse every husband should know, talks about our wives being co-heirs with us. That, that, that's a radical Radical departure for the way people would have thought in the Roman world. That, that women, that daughters are heirs along with sons. And all of this happens by the Holy Spirit who inside of us is getting us to say, Abba, Father. Jesus commanded in the Lord's Prayer that we're to pray, Our Father. And he told us to pray that because he knew that he was going to change our hearts by the gospel and fill us with his spirit so that we could pray to him and pray our Father, we are children in His family. And all of this happens in Christ. He identified with us as sinners so that we could identify with Him as Son. He took on our identity so that we could take on His identity. He was treated the way that we deserve because we are in him. And now we get to be treated the way he deserves to be treated. And our whole identity is fixed on this. It's all aiming towards this. God has wanted to make you a son. He has had a son from eternity past. And he predestined to, to make us sons and daughters, to, to make us part of his family. God has done all of this for us. And when you think about all of the other aspects of our identity, to be alive, someone... Someone could resuscitate another person who was, who was dead or flatlining, but that doesn't obligate them to love that person. A judge could make a legal declaration and say, you are innocent, but that judge doesn't need to take you into his home and write you into his will. Someone could, someone could be a master over a slave and, 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 and give the person a, a good job and provide for them in that way, but they're not obligated to love their servants or to love their slaves. A king can protect and provide for and give guidance to his citizens. But listen, a king doesn't have to love his citizens. A king doesn't even know his citizens personally. But we have been made a citizen. We have been made alive. We have been made justified. All so that we could be made sons. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 says... See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. This is the love that God has shown us, that we would be called children, that he would love us that much, that he would want to relate to us as Father. I know some of us have a difficult time relating to God as Father because our earthly Father either... Uh, did a horrible job of representing what it means to be a father or was completely absent. And listen, you might have a list of reasons about what happened in your relationship with your father, but don't forget the list of reasons that God has given to you. Making you alive, justifying you by his grace, sanctifying you by his spirit, making you a saint, giving, making, making you his slave in his service and a citizen of his kingdom, all because he loves you. 
And Jameson's going to come out and lead us in a song. And uh, before he does that, I want to read to you what, I, what, what in my mind is the most precious paragraph outside of the Bible. And it meditates on 1 John chapter 3, verses 1. Can we get that verse on the screen again? 1 John 3, verse 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Notice, we should be called that, and then I love this next part, and so we are. It's not just a title. It's our identity that we are children of God. You are a child of God. That is who you are. So hear these words from A.W. Tozer. From a failure to understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians even today. The Christian life is thought to be glum, unrelieved cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. The truth is that God is the most winsome of all beings and his service, one of unspeakable pleasure. He is all love, and those who trust him need never know anything but that love. He's just indeed, and he will not condone sin, but through the blood of the everlasting covenant, he is able to act towards us exactly as if we had never sinned. He may sometimes chasten us, it's true, but even this he does with a smile, the profound tender smile of a father who is bursting with pleasure over an imperfect but promising son who is coming every day to look more and more like the one whose child he is. We please him most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and loves us still. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard a tender whisper of love.
Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to call you Father. We thank you that because we are found in Jesus Christ, that you call us sons, that you are pleased with us, and that you are at peace with us, and that you love us with an everlasting, unbreakable, eternal love. So God, I pray, Lord, you would draw us close to you. I pray that our identity would be rooted in the fact that you are our father, that we are your children, and that you love us. So God, we love because you first loved us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's stand together. Let's sing this chorus by faith together. And I know that in every gathering like this, there's got to be there's got to be some people who have had a very strained relationship with a father or who have had no relationship with a father and maybe this is a this is a new beginning for you. We begin with 2 Corinthians 5:17 that there's a, you've been made a new creation and you've had a horrible example of what a father should be. You need to understand, listen, and there's probably a big long list of, well, here's the reasons of why I can't relate to God as father, and here's all the things that my father did. But listen, look at the list of what God has done. He justified you. He set you free. He called you a saint. He made you a citizen in his kingdom. He is changing you and transforming you all for the purpose that he could call you a son or a daughter. And so let's
let's sing this out. So you hear this uh, week after week, but do you know that it's, this is who you are, that what I'm about to say to you, this, defi- this is your identity, this is who you are. You are loved. God bless. Have a great week. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.